Well, good morning, everyone. I, uh, I didn't have this planned, but I feel like the Holy Spirit's whispering to me that somebody has something to say after we sang that song about being redeemed and Jesus is changing people's lives. So I'm going to grab this microphone, and if you feel like the Holy Spirit is elbowing you and saying, give me a word of testimony, I'm going to hand you this mic. Anybody out there just want to share what God's been doing in their life and um, give God a little praise? I see a hand. Yeah. Thank you. And tell everybody who you are, Larry. Well, my name's Larry. Um, <laughs> that was you know, uh, nobody raised their hand, so somebody has to raise their hand, right? Uh-huh. And uh, I'll just give you a quick testimony. And uh, it was 1977, and I was going through a divorce. And uh, I was very lonely and rejected. And uh, my pastor came down to my house one day when I was sick. And uh, November 1977, and uh, I, I can't say this some places, but I, I can say it here. He, he was a Lutheran, and I was going to a Lutheran <laughs> church, and they don't have altar calls. But he got saved at a Billy Graham crusade, this pastor, Pastor Dushel. And uh, so he knew what to do, and I finally surrendered that day. And uh, it was the best day of my life. When I opened the door of my heart and I asked Jesus to come in and be my personal best friend, and I turned my life over to him, and my life has never been the same since I did that. Glory be to God. Amen. God is so good. He's still changing people's lives. Wow. Thank you, Larry. Anybody else? I don't know. If that was... That was the one story we were supposed to hear, or if anybody else has one, too. All right. Thank you, Larry. We needed to hear that. Let's just pray together. God, you are still alive and moving in this world in our families, in our community, in this church, right here in this room. God, we don't want to miss it. There's so much that we long to see you do in our own lives and hearts because we bring a lot of burdens with us today in the lives of those we love. We all know people who need healing in mind, body, and spirit. And God, in this world, we long to see you bring peace and reconciliation, justice and mercy. And it amazes us sometimes, Lord, that your plan for all of this is to work through people like us, that we're it, we're the plan. It doesn't seem like the best plan all the time, Lord, we have to admit, but... We love you, and we trust you. And like the prophets of old, we say, here am I, send me. 
So God, as we come here this morning, let it be to be strengthened for what you have for us this week as we go back out. Let this church be a headquarters where we come and are trained and are encouraged and strengthened, not just to go live our private little lives and hopefully have a good week, but to go out and turn this world upside down with the power of Jesus. God, would you light our hearts on fire for the things that light your heart on fire? Would you give us hearts that are broken for the lost? You were all about lost people, Jesus. That's what we want to, and we admit that we're not there yet, but you can give us that gift of your heart, your faith, your love. Lord, do your work among us here today as we sing and pray and learn. May it be all about you. And may we go from this place different than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles together. John chapter 20. John 20, we're reading verse 19 through verse 29. <clears throat> Actually, I'm going to go through 31. 29, or 19 through 31. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fears of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, <clears throat> his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciple, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, 
you may have life in his name. Friends, this is God's word for us today. Holy Spirit, come, move among us, teach us with your voice. Amen. Well, we're getting to know Jesus' disciples during this Lenten season, especially the 12, the, the ones who were closest to him in his kind of his inner circle, and especially the ones that the Gospels tell us some information about. Some of them we have a little bit, just, just their names, only a little bit of information, but some of them we can really get to know. And in getting to know them, it helps us to understand what it means for us to be disciples again. So we have these 12. And in your bulletin, again, on the sermon page, there's that little poem that I told you about two weeks ago. Did anybody cut that out and glue it in your Bible? Okay, I see a few hands. All right. Anybody working on memorizing it? I'm telling you, memorize it. It will help you the rest of your life. Someday you'll be on Jeopardy and you'll need to Name the 12 disciples, and you'll be like, thank you, Pastor Kristen. I got them memorized. You can cut that out and stick it in your Bible and, and learn those 12. Well, today we're, we're getting to know Thomas. And all you Toms out there are like, I know, doubting Thomas. I know. That's his nickname. It's terrible to have your name made into an insult, isn't it? You know, being a chatty Kathy or an average Joe or a gloomy Gus or, I don't know, a Debbie Downer, doubting Thomas. <laughs> Nobody wants to be a doubting Thomas, do they? Or maybe we're afraid that actually secretly deep down we're kind of like him and that maybe... Maybe our doubts and our questions about Jesus will be judged to be too big, like Thomas. Nobody wants to be like Thomas. Well, as we get to know him, we realize that maybe, maybe that label, Doubting Thomas, isn't really fair. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us really nothing about Thomas, except his name. But in the Gospel of John, we get to see him as a real person. He really comes to life and becomes clearly defined. He's usually referred to as Thomas, who is called Didymus, which means twin. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, most of these disciples have at least two names, some of them three, partly because they spoke Aramaic and they spoke Greek, so they had names in both languages, but then Jesus often gave them a new name, and some of them had nicknames as well. So Thomas, we read often, is also called Didymus, which means twin. We never find out anything about his twin, who the other half of that, that duo was. The first time we get to know Thomas, it's in John 11. And it's interesting that we don't see a doubter here. We see someone of great courage, when Thomas enters the scene, he, we know he's been with Jesus as part of the 12, but when he kind of comes on the scene as a main character here in, in John chapter, 12, uh, ch chapter 11, um, things are heating up. The religious leaders 
have decided that they have to get rid of Jesus before he does any more damage, and they've decided that they're going to have him killed. They haven't figured out how yet, but they've, figured that they've made that decision. And in the previous chapters, coming right up to John 11, Jesus has come within a hair of being stoned to death twice, and things have gotten so hot that he and his disciples have said, we gotta get away from Jerusalem. So they've gotten away to save their lives. But then a message comes to Jesus from his dear friends, Mary and Martha, that their brother, Lazarus, is really sick. And they're saying, Jesus, please come. Come, pray for Lazarus. You can heal him. He needs you. But the problem is Mary and Martha and Lazarus live right outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. So going back to help Lazarus would mean going right back into the danger zone. So in John eleven six, it says, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he said to his disciples, let's go back. Let's go back to Judea. And his disciples don't think this is a great idea. Verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, like he doesn't remember this, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? I love how honest they always are with him. Jesus, you might not remember those death threats and those stones. But then Thomas, it says in 16, Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us go also, that we may die with him. Wow, that's courage. That's courage. And notice that Thomas is not an optimist here. He doesn't say, let's go, it'll all work out. It's easy, I think, sometimes for an optimist to be loyal in difficult situations, but Thomas, he seems more like a realist here than an optimist. He can see the danger ahead. In fact, he can see nothing but disaster ahead, but he determines to be faithful to the end. He says, I would rather die than be unfaithful to Jesus. Wow, that is courage. He says, Whatever it takes, there's no price too high to follow Jesus. Let's go with him and die with him, Thomas says. Maybe he should be called Courageous Thomas instead of Doubting Thomas. The next time we see Thomas is just a few chapters later in John chapter 14. Jesus has gathered his disciples in an upper room they're celebrating the Passover, and Jesus knows this is the end. He knows he's going to be facing death within just a matter of hours. This is their last night together, and so he's trying to reassure them and teach them and guide them one last time, and he says to them, I'm going away, and he talks to them about how in his father's house there are many, many rooms, and that Jesus is going to prepare a place for them. And he says, and I will come back and take you to be with me and you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas speaks up, verse five. He says, Lord, 
We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? He asks a great question here. Thomas seems not to like living with unasked questions. He's inquisitive. Questions and wonder and even sometimes doubt are the soil in which vibrant faith is born. William Barclay says this, it has been said that the whole art of gaining knowledge consists in asking the right questions. It could be said that the way to certainty is to have the right kind of doubt. Isn't that interesting? The way to certainty is to have the right kind of doubt. I've noticed over the years that there there are different ways of holding on to these questions of faith. You know, life gives us a lot of questions, doesn't it? A lot of hard questions, heavy questions, questions that really make us wonder and say, God, what were you thinking? There's a way of holding those questions in a clenched fist and stuffing them deep down inside and using them to build a wall against God, against hope, against faith, that just turns those questions deep down into bitterness. And there's another way of holding those same questions, those hard questions, with an open hand and saying, God, I don't understand this, and I would love some answers. I'm just going to hold on, God. I'm going to wait. I'm going to watch. I'm going to let you teach me until I can get some answers. That's a way of doubting that I think can be the soil that faith grows in, and that seems to be what Thomas is modeling for us here. In response to Thomas's question, Jesus gives that great answer. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, Lord, so how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Ultimately, what we need when we have those deep questions that we're holding on to is not so much uh, answers or arguments, but we need the presence of Jesus. That's what Jesus communicates here. He doesn't say, Thomas, this is how it all works out. These are all the ideas behind what I'm saying. He says, I am. I am, Thomas. He says, you know what? I know you don't understand what's happening, Thomas. No one understands, but whatever happens, you have me, Thomas. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Ultimately, what we need is not argument so much as presence, the presence of Jesus. Thomas had the courage to ask that question. He was inquisitive enough to ask that question. How do we know the way? And that led to a deeper understanding and even more important, a deeper presence of Jesus. Thomas the Inquisitive. That's a good name. Thomas the Inquisitive. So then we see Thomas again in today's passage, John 20. It's Sunday evening. 
Jesus has been dead since Friday afternoon, and all hope is lost. And the disciples are afraid, and they're hiding behind locked doors, and they don't know what to do next because they had pinned all their hopes on Jesus, and now he's dead. And then he shows up, right? He walks right through that door, even though it's locked. He says, peace be with you. He shows them that he's alive, and it's amazing, and they're celebrating. But Thomas wasn't there. We don't know why. Maybe it was his turn to go buy groceries. Maybe he was so heartbroken he couldn't bear to be with them. We don't know. But he comes back, and when he gets back, they tell him, we've seen the Lord. And he's like, yeah, right. No, really, we've seen the Lord. He doesn't want to believe it. He can't believe it. He says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, because remember Jesus was poked with a spear in his side when he was on the cross. He says, I will not believe. That's where he gets that nickname, Doubting Thomas. Well, if we closed our Bibles and left the story right there, we could leave him with the name Doubting Thomas. But the story goes on. A week later, I just imagine what that week must have been like for Thomas. A whole week later, must have felt like a long week. God doesn't always speed things along on our timetable, does he? A whole week later, Jesus shows up again. He walks through those locked doors again, and this time, Thomas is there. It's almost like Jesus knows He's got to go back for that last one for Thomas since he missed it the first time. And he and Thomas have a real encounter. It says in verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believed. When Thomas saw Jesus and his wounds, he breathed out the greatest confession of faith in the whole New Testament. He says, my Lord and my God. Wow. Believing Thomas. Faithful Thomas. Not doubting Thomas, believing Thomas. You know, I think there's two things we can really learn from Thomas that help us on our journey, and that's this. First, that Jesus does not blame anyone for wanting to be sure. Jesus does not blame Thomas for his doubts. He knows that the path to faith is often through the wilderness of doubt. And Jesus never says to Thomas, you shouldn't doubt. He never says to anyone, you must have no doubts. In fact, through the Bible, we see God patiently helping people who have their struggles with doubts. Before Gideon could be used by God, he cried out, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? You ever said anything like that? Job struggled with God. 
He said, I cry to you, God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. Wow. David, in the Psalms, cried out, How long, O Lord? How long will you let the wicked prosper and let the good people suffer? Isaiah said, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. We see the father who is asking Jesus to heal his son say, I believe, Jesus, but help my unbelief. It's belief and unbelief all often mixed together in our hearts. Often what it takes to really own our faith is to struggle for it. We have a model, Jesus on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why? We can be honest with God. Thomas's doubts led him to faith. My Lord and my God. You know, sometimes I think giving our lives to Jesus, becoming Christians is presented to us sort of like when we want to download some new software on our, our uh, computer and you get to that long terms and conditions. You're supposed to read the whole thing, but nobody can read the whole thing. And even if you did, you wouldn't understand it, so you just click agree at the bottom. Yeah, I agree. I hope it all works out. Sometimes I think giving our lives to Jesus is presented like that. Just click agree and we'll, he'll help us figure it all out. Notice that Thomas did not become sure through working through the creed, working through the convictions of truth, but he first had a personal experience with Jesus. He touched his wounds. He put his hand in that wound on his side. William Barclay says, Thomas became sure not of the things about Jesus, but he became sure of Jesus himself. That's a great model of faith for us. So that's the first thing I think Thomas teaches us, that Jesus does not blame anyone for wanting to be sure. And here's the second thing. That certainty is most likely to come to a person in the fellowship of believers. You know, when Thomas was alone, he was doubly alone. When he was missing from the fellowship of believers, he cut himself off from the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And it was when he returned and he came back to that fellowship of the 12 that he met Christ again. Sometimes we meet Jesus in solitude and silence. Sometimes he comes to people in dreams or individually. But there is no place you are more likely to meet the living Christ than in the gathering of people who love him, in the fellowship of believers. It's like that story you've probably heard. Every preacher has preached the story about the log that gets separated from the fire. And, you know, if you've had a fire, you know, you got to keep pushing the logs together. And if one rolls away, it tends to go out, right? But if you push it back into the fire, it'll catch again. Our lives are like that. We don't know how faith happens exactly, but we know that the place that's most likely for faith to catch fire is 
with other people who love Jesus. Reverend William Self writes about an experience that he had that helped him understand this. He says, I have been a pastor for a long time and have observed some people growing in their faith and others retreating. One day a man came into my office and asked if I could spare some time with him. Of course, I was glad to do it. He said he was losing his faith and wanted to leave the church because he was racked with doubts. I told him that I had to go to the hospital to make a visit and asked him to ride with me so that we could talk about his issue in the, in the car, and he agreed to do it. We drove across town to a large hospital. We walked through the corridors and found the room of the patient whom I was sent to visit. The patient was a young doctor in his late 30s who was dying of inoperable cancer. As we entered the room, we noticed all the medical equipment hooked up to his body, but he was very conscious of our presence and wanted to talk. We talked for a moment about life and death. I read scripture and we prayed together. My doubting friend was there with me and stood at the foot of the bed as I stood at the patient's side. The entire process in the room took about 15 to 20 minutes. There were tears in the eyes of the patient in the bed as we turned to leave. We went down the hall to the elevator and then out to the parking lot before either one of us said another word. Finally, on the way back to church, my doubting Thomas turned and said, I see things entirely differently now. Eternity has broken into my life and I want to start all over again with Christ. Just as Jesus made room for Thomas's doubts and questions. He makes room for ours. That's because he loves us and he offers us grace. And because he does that, we can offer that same space and grace to people in our lives. We all have people that we wish we could convince to believe, don't we? That we wish we could convince to put their faith in Christ. But of course we can't make anyone else believe. But we can encourage them to put themselves in a place where faith can happen. Romans 10:17 says, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard in the word of Christ. When we hear God's word, when we experience the life of Christ together, that is the place where faith is likely to happen. This, this chapter, which is the next to last one in the, the Gospel of John, it ends with these words. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciple, disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Clearly, John knows that like Thomas, we're going to need evidence for our faith, and he provides it. That's why he wrote this book. Certainty is most likely to come 
to a person in the fellowship of believers. When you feel your doubts overwhelming you, when you feel your faith growing cold, when you are in a season like Job and saying, God, do you even see what's going on in my life? It's so tempting to pull away from the church, to pull away from your sisters and brothers in Christ. That is exactly the time when we need each other. If you see people who are drifting away, go pull them back, run after them. They may not want to be part of the body of Christ in the midst of their doubts, but we know that's exactly what we all need. We need to hold each other close. Well, Jesus ends with this in verse 29. Because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not, yet, who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, how do we who have not seen, you know, we wish we could see Jesus face to face. How do we handle our doubts? Wouldn't it be great if we could reach out and touch Jesus' wounds and have him look us right in the eye the way that he did Thomas? But you know, it's interesting. A lot of people in Jesus' day did have that experience. They saw Jesus face to face. To face. They saw him heal people. They saw him teaching and preaching and living and praying. And it didn't make them, they still did not have faith. So maybe, maybe seeing is not the key to believing. Maybe it takes more than seeing. Maybe that's what Jesus was saying here. Maybe it takes more than seeing. Maybe it takes a heart that's open to listening to the Holy Spirit a heart that's humble enough to say, God, I need you. I cannot do this on my own. And a willingness not to hold our questions in a fist, but to hold them in an open hand and let God work on them with us. Millions upon millions upon millions of disciples since Thomas have discovered the reality of what it means to believe having not yet seen you know, actually, I think I do want to be a disciple like Thomas. I said nobody wants to be a doubting Thomas, but I think I do want to be like Thomas, somebody who is courageous and inquisitive, somebody who has deep faith that's based on meeting the living Christ, somebody who's encouraged, or who has courage Inquisitive, doubting, believing, all those things together. That's what it means to be a disciple. Not because I have all my questions answered, even though I'm the professional up here. I don't have all my questions answered. I stand up here in front of you not because I've got all the answers, but because I love Jesus. And I want so much to help as many other people as I can to love Jesus. I want to be inquisitive. I want to be courageous. I want to take my doubts and my faith and hold them together and hold them out to God. Thomas, I want to be a disciple like you. I found a prayer this week called A Prayer for Doubters. 
seems like a good prayer for us. So let's end with that this morning. Will you pray with me? Oh God, you call us to be people of faith, yet we are often people with doubts. We doubt that love can grow again in relationships where anger and bitterness reign supreme. We doubt that peace can come where hatred and racism thrive. We doubt that the hungry can be fed, where despair and hopelessness dominate. But Jesus, you specialize in impossibilities. You walked on water. You heal the nations. You forgive sins. You set the captive free. And you set us free from our captivities. This morning, we pray for people here who are filled with doubts, who wonder whether you exist and whether you are listening to our prayers, who wonder what this whole community of faith is about. God, we pray for people who doubt the purpose of life, who wonder whether to give up, who face feelings of meaningless, meaninglessness and despair. Even when we have that sinking feeling, give us the wisdom to turn to you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Give us faith, small as a mustard seed, so that we can be your faithful people, believing in your power to save, believing in your power to bring in your kingdom of love and justice, believing that we can share this good news with everyone we meet. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.